inspiring you to reach your goals and live your dream. And live your dream. This is the Keaton Nelson Show. All righty, guys. Uh, today I've got a really special treat for you. Uh, Jeremy Osler. Am I saying that right, man? You are, yes. Perfect. Yeah, uh, he's coming on to share some knowledge with you guys. Jeremy, thanks for being on the show. Fantastic to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely, man. So um, I always like to start like with where are you from? Where How'd you grow up? Were you rich? Were you poor? Were your parents together? What was it like growing up? Because um, I like to have like successful people come on the show. And a lot of the times they, they're no different from any of the listeners or people getting started. So I, I like to start there. So yeah, where are you from, man? Yeah, an interesting place to start. And I think a fantastic one. I am, yeah, I come from humble beginnings. I come from a broken home. Um, you know, there were times we were on food stamps. I would move back and forth between my my parents' homes. They would move quite a bit. Um, I went to three different high schools. Um, it was rough. Yeah, it was rough. And so what's interesting about that is that, um, you know, I was, I, I recognized very early on that I had a tremendous amount of potential. I could, I, I could tell that I could excel athletically and I could excel academically, but given some of the things that I had gone through, there were mental barriers that kept getting in the way. And so there was a, there was a level of self-sabotage and there was a level of protecting myself from a kind of embarrassment of, of not pushing or, or, or going as hard or as far as I, I wanted to or thought I could because of the things of, of which I had experienced as a child. And so, uh, yeah, I think uh, the, uh, the starting point here to actually put that in perspective so that you can actually measure it now with where you are today, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. So did you go to college? So I did go to college. Um, Where'd you go? Where'd you, what'd you go for? So I went, so when I first started, I went to a community college. I came back from uh, a two year mission for my church. Oh, cool. Went to a community college. Um, and then from there, I actually ended up going into the military. And so I joined the military intelligence and became an interrogator. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So I became an interrogator. And then, you know, from there, they had colleges that I went to. So one of which was Cochise College and then another of which was the Defense Language Institute. And so I had scored very high on a, on a language aptitude test and it enabled me to pick any language I wanted to learn. And so I chose to learn Chinese, Mandarin Chinese. And so I went to, to that college. Um, and then afterward, I was able to get right into my career. Um, I ended up finishing my, my bachelor's in business administration. And the only reason I chose that wasn't because I had any interest whatsoever, but it was because, again, I think on some level I was protecting myself. Um, and it was broad enough that because I didn't know exactly what it was that I should be studying, I was like, okay, let me just land on this one. And if I had it to do over again, I would have done it differently. Um, I ended up as a jury consultant, however. And so my experience as an interrogator led me to become a jury consultant. And I don't know if you have any familiarity with what jury consultants do. No so, idea. Yeah. So a jury consultant is someone that, a, that attorneys hire to help them win their case. And so generally speaking, when you hire a jury consultant, it's because you cannot afford to lose, right? So either someone is facing prison 
or there are multi-millions of dollars on the line. And so the jury consultant is responsible for coming in and dealing with all of the psychological, the people part of winning cases. And so I was responsible for picking juries, um, preparing witnesses, opening statements, closing arguments, and then of course the attorneys themselves. Um, that experience, however, as I was doing this, um, there's a there's a there's a fee structure, right? And so, as a jury consultant, you generally charge by the hour. And of course, those hourly rates can be fantastic, but there's a way in which you could actually change the fee structure so that you could attach what you get, especially on like a civil case worth multi millions of dollars. You could attach a percentage to that particular um, winning. Mm -hmm. If you're an attorney yourself. And so I ended up going to law school as well. And for the sole purpose of changing that fee structure, of course, to, there's, a, there's a lot that someone can glean from going to law school. Um, but I didn't end up finishing it. Um, I went uh, for a year. I actually passed the California State Baby Bar. Um, but I had some happenings in my personal life that took me from that particular path. Mm. Gosh, man. So are you, are you married now? I am married. You have any kids? Four. Four? Where are you living now? St. George, Utah. Utah. You Mormon? I am. Yeah. Like, uh, four kids. You, are you stopping there? You keep going. You guys pump them out. <laughs> no, I'm done. Yeah, four <laughs> kids. I, mean, <laughs> I started out with a very ambitious idea of having, you know, the 12 tribes of Osler, but uh, mm -hmm. reality hits and, you know, four's, four's a good number. Yeah. Gotcha, man. How old are the kids? So my oldest is 16, almost turning 17. Wow. So it's a junior in high school. And then I've got 14-year-old twins, boy-girl, and then a 10-year-old. So three boys and a girl. Gotcha. Cool. Very, very cool. Um, what's it? Um, hmm. I, I want to poke and prod a little bit. Um, yeah with the you know the the mormon church there's uh get a lot of you know just like people don't understand it and stuff like that like uh what's your take on it and um and you know what people you know have questions about so um what what's if you had a chance to just express yourself and give some clarity uh where things may be misconstrued in either the media or what whatever outlet that it happens to see like like what what's your take on the mormon church being a mormon well, I, you know, obviously I believe it, right? Otherwise sure. I wouldn't be it. And, if, and and what's interesting about that is that I didn't grow up a member of this church. It was something that in my adulthood I actually chose to be a part of. Um, and yeah, there's a ton of misconceptions. At what, uh, you know, at what part do we start? Who knows? But in any investigation of a religion, it requires a level of openness, right? And I would even say a level of intelligence to be able to, to, to appropriately and effectively kind of investigate the particular belief systems. Um, and so I don't know at what, uh, you know, I, I imagine that you've got something on the tip of your tongue that uh that 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 you might want to ask about and maybe i can answer maybe i can't um yeah. i've got a few things so yeah. let's let's start easy we'll go harder as it goes on right so um do you, listeners may not know this about me but i in second grade was baptized mormon okay okay i did not stay with the church um 
probably I stayed maybe two or three years as a kid, right? Um, so I know like a lot of these answers to the questions too, but it's it's fun having a guest on that I can ask too. Uh, what would you what when people say like polygamy, right? And one man has multiple wives. Uh, could you give some context or reasons to why that was, or why? Or that it's or like that it's not happening now, or that it is happening. Like where, like, what's your viewpoint on that, and how people perceive that? Yeah. So the first place that I think that you have to start anytime you look at a, like a huge, ginormous question like that, particularly in a culture in which it was not ever practiced, um, you actually have to go back to some some of the more origins, right? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I find interesting is that a lot of times Christians themselves have not wrestled or grappled with that particular question, never mind the fact that it's actually part of their history, right? Especially if you look at it from the Judeo-Christian perspective. So you go back all the way to the Old Testament and you find Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, right? Prophets of whom they all accept and believe to be, no kidding, called by God prophets. These were individuals that were practicing polygamy. Um, And so... The, 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 the hard part is when you're coming from a culture in which doesn't and it's looked or it's frowned upon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the other part of this is that it's not an inherently good thing either, right? And so what we recognize or an inherently bad thing, we recognize that there are times in which God would ordain it and other times in which he would not. Of course, for for modern day sensibilities, you're looking more for a black and white answer. And unfortunately, as it relates to this particular question, it's not black and white. And so when you go into why God would have authorized it at the time of, for example, uh, Joseph Smith, and then for years after, um, you know, you get into theorizing sorts, right? And I couldn't be an authority that could answer definitively that particular question. But do I believe that God, no kidding, authorized it at that particular time? I do. Of course, the church at that time, and even if you were to take more of a like a broader perspective, you know, one of the things that was enshrined in the Constitution of the United States is the fact that um, the religious freedom, right? It was an ideal, though, because what we know is that it wasn't actually practiced at the inception of the the founding of this country there was there were still things culturally that were getting in the way from our ability to practice religion freely well the mormons were no exception to that and in fact the only time in the history of the united states that an extermination or extermination order had been authorized by a governor was in the United States against the Mormons in the state of Missouri. And so what you have is a a group of individuals, this fledgling, obscure people, if you will, this new religion um, of sorts um, that was under heavy, heavy, heavy persecution. They were were being driven from their homes. They They were small in number. Um, if you want to, uh, you know, somehow associate the authorization by God in, in in terms of polygamy, you know, on those grounds, maybe you can make a case. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. So what I heard, what I heard, or this is what I it was taught when I was, in, you know, go to Sunday school and stuff. Um, or maybe I was asking those questions. But it was that if you look at the, the just history, like you got back to, right? not that far back but like when the church was being founded 
was it was during the time where people were migrating from the east coast of the united states to the west coast of the united states uh resources were thin um you and there were more women than there were men and having multiple women in one household and being able to support them and divide up the resources that way rather than having a woman off on her own trying to get everything she needs to survive or like that's what i heard was the, the reason behind polygamy it was to just provide for the community in a specific way not so much in this like you know in, in like a dirty way you know what i mean yeah and and there's probably you know aspects to it that that very much fits within mm-hmm. the idea though that this was like a hyper sexualized effort you know driven by you know unholy men would be not 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 it doesn't correlate with the actual history right um, and so in in some of these cases in fact they weren't even you know there they weren't even sexual relationships and that's where you even go even further into the religion where you start to consider um the belief of sealing families for example for time and eternity right and so you're going deep into the into the religious psyche if you will mm-hmm. when you look at a question for example like polygamy <laughs> yeah it's wild but what about this like i'm drinking an energy drink right now you guys don't drink caffeine see and that would be a misconception okay. caffeine has never actually been outlawed and it's not even just a misconception that the outside world has looking in even certain members of the church were confused about that particular um proposition right like the idea that the word of wisdom the word of wisdom is uh you know for the church it's a health code if you will um of what you can take or what you should take and what you should not um and so for example the actual word of wisdom would say that you know no alcohol no tobacco uh no illicit drugs no tea or coffee a lot of times what happened is that the the, the members of the church would interpret the tea and coffee as 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 a as a as a prohibitive as a result of the caffeine and sometimes they would attach it to the caffeine because that would make the most sense in terms of its potential addictive properties right mm-hmm. but caffeine in and of itself is not actually prohibited and that's not actually the reason for the 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 prohibition if you will against uh, tea and coffee so the energy drink does not actually violate the word of wisdom you would be perfectly fine and in and, and, <laughs> in perfect alignment with the the church's standards if you were drinking uh a caffeinated drink that's really funny yeah see that's what i mean um we could go probably a lot deeper into a lot of different things but i'll keep it moving so we can give some value to the 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 listeners but i just it was it was just uh an opportunity to have a conversation i don't get to have very often so with what you're doing now what are you up to now you got four so, kids, you got a wife. What are you doing to provide for them? So I am a high performance coach. And so what I did is, in fact, just this year, I, I left my jury consulting practice and started this high performance coaching business. And the reason that I did that is because first, when I was working as a as a jury consultant, I recognized that you could actually have the perfect strategies. But those strategies and their implementation rested solely on the on the attorney's ability to implement them. And what you have here then is this this uh, this bottleneck, if you will, 
right? The attorney becomes the single most important, especially when you look at it from like the client's perspective and the consequences that result. Right. This attorney's role is monumental. It is really incumbent upon this attorney to, to perform at the highest levels, never mind the strategies that have been put in place, never mind the jury that we have helped to, to select, never mind the preparation that went into all of the witnesses to the opening um, statements into the closing arguments, right? Never mind into the to, to how we question and flesh out the truth. The ability of the attorney to perform at the highest levels was the single most important part of the entire trial experience. And when you look at it from that perspective, what you recognize, and I actually very much believe this, that performance is the only thing that matters. What 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 stands between you and what you want is what you do or don't do. Right. And so I became um, hyper-focused on that particular aspect of it. And I found the greatest levels of fulfillment and joy for me personally in helping the attorney to perform at the highest levels. And that became critically apparent, for example, when you would have an attorney and there would be a moment in trial in which, for whatever reason, they were triggered and it was as if they went from where they were standing in that courtroom and trying this particular case to a previous time in their lives in which some traumatic event had happened. And without their awareness, without, without any consciousness, if you will, of what was taking place, their ability to perform and to represent this client to the best of their abilities was now compromised. And so if you were to take an attorney and you would recognize, okay, you've got all of the things as it relates to the legalese and all of the things as it relates to the strategies going into this. Have we done the work, however, to make sure that you are prepared to enter this particular venue and represent your client to the best of your ability? Um, and what I would find is that almost exclusively the answer to that was no. There was more work to be done on the personal side of things that attorneys, as much as they thought that they could compartmentalize their lives, they could say, well, I am an attorney. And for this, I'm going to put on this hat. I'm going to walk into this particular space and I'm going to leave every piece of baggage and traumatic experience and limiting life belief that I have outside of that courtroom that always proved not to, to be the case. And so as I began to work with attorneys on that level, I found the greatest levels of, of fulfillment. And so what I wanted to do was I wanted to take that, no kidding, uh, start a business in which I was just focused um, on helping people to perform. And so what you find from that is that, you know, you, you look at the vast majority of the, the, the human population, or at least even within, you know, whatever circles of influence we might be privileged to be part of. And most people, when you look at it, they struggle to understand why they do what they do. And if you struggle to understand why you do what you do, it's very difficult to do something different. And in fact, what most people end up relying on is either willpower or motivation. Mm -hmm. But willpower and motivation are not long-term strategies, right? Not good long-term. What was that? They're fleeting. Very fleeting. Yep. And so you have these people that kind of binge on motivation, if you will. They're constantly in search of it. Or they're trying to force themselves or resist something, and yet they, they can't seem to do it over a sustained period of time. 
And so what they ultimately end up thinking is that there's something fundamentally wrong with them. There's something defective. They're just not like the people that they see that are, that are able to do things that for whatever reason they can't get themselves to do. Yep. And so I began a, a serious, um, you know, study of that particular phenomenon, right? Like, why do we do what we do? And if you can answer that question, well, then how do you change it? And even if you can say, well, we'll answer on some level, this is why I do what I do. Can you answer then the, the next and, and most important question of how do you actually change it? And so, um, yeah, that's what I, that's what I became very passionate about, um, in an effort to, to really help people. Very cool. Um, so do you have a like fifth grade level of explaining how you change what you just said? Like, how do you change what you like? your behavior because yeah so, the first, yeah so there's actually and this is like a like a law um and it's a law that was identified by uh steve zaffron in his book called the three laws of performance and so it is it is a no kidding law similar to that of gravity right i mean you can pretend as if gravity doesn't exist and you can try and and, and stand atop a hundred story building and jump and say you know i can fly right but the reality is is that gravity is going to operate um, just as it would regardless of whatever state of mind you're in. And so the, the, the law here that's in operation is that our performance correlates to how things occur to us. That is a, that is a groundbreaking truth that if people can get to the, to the heart of, it can change their lives. And so there's a reason that the word here is occur, right? And so if I can break that down just a little bit, if, if I say our performance or behavior, the actions we take, are directly in line. They correlate exactly, perfectly with how things occur to us. Well, the reason the word occur is used and not, not for example, perception is because occur actually takes in more than just your subjective perception, right? It's more than just what you can see or what you are seeing. It takes in your expectations, your assumptions, your biases, your resentments, and it's the reality that arises from your past, how you see things, your subjective experiences. It's the, it's the reality that arises that now says, this is how, how it is. The reality is, is that's not how it is. That's simply how it occurs to you. See, we don't see reality. We see reality as it occurs to us. When you get that into your bones and you start to recognize that, oh my gosh, I've always thought that I was descriptively I was describing the truth, right? Reality as it is, when in fact what I'm doing is simply describing how reality occurs to me. Once I realize that, that then puts me in the driver's seat of my life. Now, all of a sudden, I have power to start to tinker with, if you will, or even completely transform how things occur to me. And like magic, automatically, my behavior begins to correlate it. And so what I, what I, what I began to, 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 to what, what the, the goal of every single person that I work with, if you will, um, even if I don't explicitly state it outright from the beginning, right? Because you're taking the person and you're taking them where they are and what is it that they specifically want to achieve and who is it that they specifically want to become. And of course I assume that is what, I want 
for them, right? I begin to want that as they want that themselves. And I know, though, that in the back of my mind, if I can help people to occur to themselves as being of infinite worth and of having unlimited potential, the sky then becomes the limit. And most people, they can, even if they get to a point where intellectually they can accept that, right, that they are of infinite worth and that their potential is unlimited, the idea here was, would be to, no kidding, get that into their bones such that their behavior, the way they show up in the world, becomes fundamentally different than, than how it did prior to that particular happening. Mm -hmm. And so what we're tinkering with here, the whole point of it would be to change how, how people occur to themselves. And, of course, there's a process that I, that I take clients through. Um, what are the steps in that process? So first to understand the, the, the laws of this, the other part of this. So what's so fascinating about like what you and I are doing here, what I know is that our performance exists within a network of conversations, right? And so you have, a, a, there's, you're doing a podcast, right? And in fact, you started this, like, let's just have a conversation. And I absolutely love that because our performance actually exists within these networks of conversation. And if you pay attention to the conversation, It'll reveal itself, or uh, what will be revealed is how things occur to you, right? You just start listening to people and they start talking and all of a sudden it becomes very clear how things occur to them. And then it makes perfect sense why they do what they do in the world or why they don't do what they, what they don't do in the world. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so what you do is you find that by simply changing the nature of the conversation, mm-hmm. You can change the trajectory of someone's future. You can change how things occur to people. And so what we begin to do is become very sensitive to the conversations that we're having. There are some conversations that we need to stop having, and then there are other conversations that we need to start having. And this also includes the conversations we have with ourselves. But it exists within language, right? Any decision that you make, any decision of what to do or what not to do, it exists within a kind of conversation. On some level, you're using language basically to, to speak into existence the future. And so we become very clear about that. And then we become very clear about the kind of language that either continues to just recycle the past or that, no kidding, rewrites the future. Um, and, and part of that process, um, you know, includes um, answering the question of, for example, how did I become who I am today? How did I become who I am today? Because as long as you cannot see into the constraints of your limiting life sentences, I am convinced um, and have seen this time and time and time again that every single person on planet Earth has experienced some level of trauma, right? And trauma defined, you can have it as extreme as like sexual or physical abuse, um, or it can be as simple as something like your third grade teacher said to you. But ultimately what it is, is it's a defining moment in your life in which you had convicted yourself with a limiting life sentence. Two things basically arose from this. First, there was an experience that said to you, something is wrong here and something is wrong with me. Something is wrong with me. And so what you did as a result, every single one of us does this. We made a decision on how to deal with what we think is wrong with ourselves. And ultimately what that becomes is a persona. We develop a kind of persona that's designed to cover up 
what we think is wrong with us, and then to deal with it so that we can experience some level of success. I help people to see into those limiting life sentences and to complete the issues from their past so that they can, no kidding, rewrite a future that's unconstrained by the limits of the past. Once you actually can see into that, then you can start to ask yourself like uh, a question that I think everybody asks themselves. Well, who am I really? If I'm not this persona that I created basically to cover up what I think is wrong with me, who am I really? And of course, that's where I get, you know, I introduce this idea of that you are of infinite worth and your potential is unlimited. Um, and what's so, what's so interesting about that particular idea is that, right, when we say, for example, of, of infinite worth, what does that mean? Right. Because so, so, so often what people will do is they will confuse their worth for their character. Right. Character has everything to do with that, what, what you do and don't do. Right. But your worth has nothing to do with your character. It has nothing to do with, with, with what you choose to do or not do. As a human being, you are endowed with inherent worth that is infinite, meaning you are worth as much today as the day you were born, and there is nothing you can do to possibly change that. Now, in terms of your character, of course, there's tons we can do, and there's a lot of work that, we need to, that, that needs to be done, but your character does not speak necessarily to what you are worth as a human being. Does that make sense? Sure. I got off on a little bit of a, a of a tangent there. It's like, no, it's no, like, it's good. It's good. It's it's cool. Um, a lot, a lot of people are saying the same thing just differently, you know. So I, I hear it from a lot of different angles. Um, but it's 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 interesting to see it from a different angle, like the the way you're describing it, um, and the way that you go about changing it. So it no, it was good. It gave a lot of insight. Uh, so if this is resonating for someone, like who's, who do you help? Like who, who's a good fit to work with Jeremy? So, yeah. So obviously I've worked with, with trial attorneys. I've actually worked with politicians, um, business owners, entrepreneurs, um, and I continue to do so, but I've actually, I, I, I have found so, and this is because of how much I relate to it. I believe that there is a, there is a group of individuals where, where, that, where, where there exists untapped potential and creativity and these are in the in, in the people that are generally you know considered nice people right the, the the nice people of the world these are your people pleasers of sorts right if you were to look at like um um you know our survival instincts right the the vast majority of the human race recognizes the freeze flee or fight there is a there's a there's a there's a fourth aspect that's not as well recognized and it's actually it was introduced and i can't remember now the name of the author but he wrote a book called complex ptsd and he also recognized that as part of the freeze flee and fight is fawning f-a-w-n and this is that instinct it's a coping mechanism it's a survival instinct that a number of us will leverage under significant kinds of trauma or dangerous situations. What we end up doing in these cases is we end up trying to please other people in an effort to keep ourselves safe, right? We recognize at that particular time in my life, I was not safe. And in fact, if you had a parent, for example, um, that was unsafe, what you began to do is you began to say, well, there were certain moments in which this person was less dangerous. 
And it was because, for example, they were getting whatever it was that they thought that they wanted at that particular time. And you were beginning to assume a kind of responsibility as it related to it. And what you were beginning to do is to position things. So you were doing your level best to give that person what they wanted so that somehow on some level, you could not just stay safe, but you could get what you wanted. That there are people that land on that, I, I, I find to be somewhat miraculous, right? When you go through some of the kinds of trauma that people can go through, there are any number of alternative positions that you could land on, right? You could become a no kidding predator. You could become someone that is violent, that is abusive, that is um, toxic. To land on that particular one, in my opinion, is, is a credit to this person's resiliency, to this person's you know, specific and unique gifts that 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 still enable them to be empathetic, to still enable them to be sympathetic. But that ultimately, if you were to stay in that people pleasing space, it's going to limit what you're able to do. And in fact, when you look at it at, at its core, it becomes highly manipulative, right? Because it, as opposed to allowing you to see who I really am and what I really want, what my what my true desires are. What people pleasers ultimately end up doing is rather than telling people what they need to hear, what the truth is, they'll tell them what they want to hear. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so I have begun to focus specifically on helping this demographic of, 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 of people um, to heal, to, to actually go through this process, to actually perform at the highest levels. Because what I have found from this group is that they are highly intelligent. They are highly motivated. They, they generally have, you know, large swaths of, 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 of empathy for others, but that they keep expending themselves at a cost that's far too high. They keep sacrificing their own well-being um, for that of others, thinking that it's ultimately going to lead to the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, only to find that it's not, that what they're attracting into their lives um, are people that really want them to stay that person so that they can continue to, to use them. Well, as soon as they're able to see themselves in a different way and to step outside of this particular coping mechanism that they developed in a moment of crisis from, from a past childhood experience, my goodness, the things that they're able to accomplish. And of course, I, I relate. I, this, is a, this is a problem I had to answer for myself, right? I recognize that I, I as a result of some of my experiences that, that, that I landed on, on, on trying to please other people. And at a, at a significant cost to myself, I was constantly giving others what I thought that they wanted, thinking that that was the noble thing to do. Um, but it was costing me too much. In fact, it was costing me my integrity. It was costing me my ability to be authentic um, and sincere. And so I am more specifically, and of course, this particular demographic of nice people, they fall within their entrepreneurs, their business owners, their PhDs in just any number of fields. But, but yeah, that has become my focus is on specifically helping this particular community of people um, perform at their highest levels. Mm. Very cool. Uh, so I want to, um, hmm, let me pause for a second. Where can people go follow you and see more content like this? Yeah, so the first place I would I would send people to is to my Instagram page. It's the it's the it's the spot that I focus most on right now, um, and so Jeremy R uh, awesome. Yep, go give him a follow, guys. Go give him a follow. Check out what he's got to say. This is resonating with you. Um, and then I always like to end the podcast with asking the, uh, all my guests the same questions. So. Um, 
the first one's uh, softball. What's one book you believe everyone should read? I would say that the most important book people should read is probably The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. Covey. Yeah, it's a good one. Uh, I think the title is misleading. Why is that? Um, I think because it's not like wake up early. It's not like you know, you know, eat this way. It, it's it totally. It doesn't. It, they don't end up feeling like habits, like what people mostly like associate with habitual behaviors. Yeah. But um, it's still. It, that being said, I think it's a better book because of that. So, um, I just want to point that out. So it's worth. You should definitely pick up pick up that book if you haven't already read it. Um, the next question is this is a fun one. You get to go back to any age in your life, and you're you now going back to your younger self. And when you're there, your younger self knows it's you knows you know. And but when you get there, you can only say three sentences. Mm. So what age would you go back to what are the three sentences you would tell yourself and then i'm really strict on it only say three sentences don't tell me why while you're doing it but afterwards if you want to explain why i leave that up to you okay and see this is highly yeah it's highly contextual right i mean it's highly relative to what what it was but i would say at the finding moment in my life I, i would go back to when i was um I was 13 years old. I would go back to when I was 13 years old and I would tell myself, do what you know is right, no matter the cost or consequence. That would be the first sentence. Do what you know is right, no matter the cost or consequence. This one's going to be tough, and especially because it's now going public, but I would say trust your mom more than you trust your dad. Trust your mom more than you trust your dad. In my particular, yep, circumstances for my age at that particular time, I should have trusted my mom. It It would have changed the trajectory of my life. And I would say the best is yet to come. Do you want to go into why behind all this stuff or you want to, you can always pass through it. I think it's standalone sounds great, but it's also good if you wanted to. Yeah. I'll leave that up to you. Um, let's move to the next question. Okay. Um, what is the biggest regret you've had in your life? Yeah. See that gets into The person I chose to marry, not my current wife, but my ex-wife. Mm. Wow. I appreciate you being honest and willing to be vulnerable on a podcast and open this up. So I really, really appreciate that. And um, I do actually want to 
and this is for the listeners I'm like not trying to poke and prod and if you don't want to answer it you can leave that's fine too but um the reason i asked that question is because i believe that you can learn just like how if you look at people's behavior highly effective people who are absolutely crushing it um if you do what they do you should get the results they're getting like you said it's pretty basic but most people can't change their behaviors so where do you start with that but the same thing goes for um i think the opposite right things that went wrong things that are not good and if you can just not do those things you um can live a better life right so look at the things that highly affected people are not doing so you don't do those things right so um that's why i asked this regret question because um these are things i think about like when it comes to like my family why am i even doing this in business why am i doing all this and like what um what am i going to say on my deathbed what am i going to regret because that stuff's going to sting a whole lot more so i just try to be really conscious of that um so with this marriage are there any pieces of advice that you would give someone to avoid a situation like that things to look out for things to um that you would have done differently how would you like so yeah just i think you 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 know the answer to this question yeah so and this is part of this is partly why i am so focused now on this particular group of individuals these nice people because what you find is that they end up getting taken advantage of right they have bleeding hearts in a lot of cases and in fact i would say that i had a kind of savior complex especially for women right i would have this idea that i would want to save um people and especially save women and in terms of a relationship in terms of a romantic partner and ultimately a spouse that has significant serious consequences and so the 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 single most important decision that people make that has far more impactful consequences on your life than any other it's the person in whom you choose to marry that is the single most important decision people will make in their lives the consequences are far reaching and to get that one and and it's and i i i use it um for lack of a better term but to get that one wrong um the consequences aren't just felt by you they're felt by also the people that matter most to you so your children the children that result from that particular union they will also end up paying the price and if you think about it from the perspective of you get to choose your spouse your children do not choose their parents you are choosing for them the mother or the father that they're ultimately going to have in their life choose wisely choose wisely the consequences are significant and so if you want to make your if you want to if you want to set yourself up for the greatest levels of success get that decision right if you want to make things infinitely harder who knows by how much right if we were to try and qualify or quantify that particular data point um but choose the wrong person choose someone that uh that you're trying to save uh choose someone that um you cannot 
grow with, right? And, and one of the things that becomes hard about this, right, especially when you're looking at it from the perspective of like a romantic partner, why do we choose the people we choose to marry? Getting very clear on that particular que question, because if you choose it simply on the basis of love, you can make some serious mistakes here. There has to be more than just love. So, for example, underneath that, there has to be a foundation of trust. And that trust is actually built on the foundation of character. And there's just so much here. So don't just choose a love story. Choose a life story. Choose a story or a partner with whom you can, no kidding, grow um, that shares the same values uh, that you do. And that is going to consistently inspire you and help you to be the, the best version of yourself you can possibly be. Mm, that's great advice. If my team's watching, clip that. <laughs> All right. Um, that was really, really good, man. So, um, listeners, you just made it this far. Means you, you, you must have liked it a little bit, right? <laughs> so if you do me a favor, go and share this out with, with some people, put it on social media, tag me and Jeremy. Um, write a review on Apple Podcasts. That'd be a huge, huge, huge thank you. Um, I don't try to sell anything. I don't advertise. I just bring people on here because I think it could help you um, and make your life uh, better and uh, more fulfilling and more limitless, like Jeremy says, right? Um, so yeah, if you could just leave a review, we get those those ratings up, and then we can go ahead and uh, get awesome guests just like Jeremy on the show. So uh, I would truly appreciate that. And Jeremy, thank you once again for coming on. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to to do this. Absolute pleasure for me. I appreciate you having me. Thank yeah, you. Absolutely. Much. All right, guys. And until next time, peace. <laughs>